Thank you for choosing the podcast of East Haven Baptist Church in Brookhaven, Mississippi. For more information on the ministries of East Haven and to access videos and sermon notes from our services, visit www.easthaven.net. This morning we're continuing our series that we started last week called More Than a Bumper Sticker. And in this series, we, we will be looking at some often used, maybe some well-loved, some very familiar phrases, some familiar verses that you might see all over the place. And we're looking at what is the, the deeper, if not altogether different, meaning of those verses. And last week, as we began this series, we went over four basic guidelines, four basic rules to the correct way to interpret Scripture. And there are many, many more than just four of them. But I just want to go back over those four just very briefly, because if you follow these four guidelines, it will keep you out of a theological ditch. And the first one is this, context, context, context. You always look at the context. Always look at the context of any scripture reference. Look at the context of a word. Take that word, put it in the context of the phrase, the phrase in the context of the verse. Put that verse in the context of the passage. Put that passage in the context of the the chapter or the book of the Bible, and then put that book of the Bible in the overall context of God's word. It's all about context. You can't, you can't just take one little phrase out of context and then build a whole case around it without knowing what the context is. As someone uh, kind of quipped many years ago, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. And so you have to be careful about the context. Some of you will get that on the way home. Ver- uh, number two, scripture interprets scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. If you don't know what the meaning of a passage or a verse is, you go to other places in God's Word where it is clearly laid out or more clearly explained, and you look at all of it together. Can I tell you what not to do? And and, and I'm not saying don't pray whenever you're reading God's Word. You should. But I've heard people say this, I don't need to go through all of that. All I do is I just read the text and then I pray and say, God, what does that mean? And then whatever impression that I get, that's the meaning. Don't do that. Don't do that. At best, that gives you theological error. At worst, you'll form a cult. So don't do that. That's not the way you go about it. Now, am I, am I saying that you should pray as you read God's word for wisdom and for understanding? Absolutely. But God has already given us the entirety of his word. And so we go and we look and dig into God's word and we understand that scripture interprets scripture and likewise, scripture cannot and will never contradict scripture. So you're never going to find one passage of scripture that contradicts another passage of scripture. When it seems like they contradict each other, it just means that A, there's more information I need to find. B, there may be more information that God hasn't given. Or C, I just can't get my mind around it. But we have to understand there's no contradiction in Scripture because God is not contradictory within himself. Thirdly, the text can never mean what it never meant. Now, I know you say that sounds extraordinarily wise, but at the same time, very simplistic. Yes, the text can never mean what it never meant. 
Meaning we don't get to just stick a meaning onto a verse that we like. We don't get to say, well, I just really feel like that's what this verse means. And so I just believe it means this, or today it means this. Back then it may have meant that, but today it means this. No, it means what it means. There are, there's just one meaning of a text. There are multiple applications. And then finally, uh, we said we should always level up. That is, any verse that we read, any passage that we read, any text that we read, any scripture that we read, we need to understand God wants to apply that at, a, at an individual level, individuals as individuals, a personal level, individual family units, individual churches, but God also applies it to his church as a whole, his church throughout uh, creation, but also he applies it throughout all of his plan, throughout all creation. So you have to just go through and understand how all of this works together. So you always level up. You always look at what's the next level that God wants to show me. Now, I know when you talk about some of these things, some people say that seems like an awful lot of work to go through in order to study the Bible. Well, can I tell you the amount of time and effort that you spend approaching it in this way is far less time and effort than it would take you to dig out a theological error. It takes a whole lot more time and a whole lot more effort and a whole lot more energy to dig yourself out of great theological error than it does approaching God's word in a respectful, right, appropriate way. So with those four things in mind, we're going to tackle one verse today actually we're tackling all the verses around it but the phrase from the verse and it's a three-word phrase God is love you've probably seen this God is love and people use this phrase and now is it biblical absolutely yes because we're looking at the passage today from first John where we find God is love But this one phrase, this one three-word phrase has the distinction of having two words in it that depending upon whom you ask, you will get multiple definitions for, God and love. Some people say God, well, God, he's that force in the universe or or, or she is this, this being that is just a benevolence, uh, a benevolent being that just sort of helps you along or it is a force, some impersonal force out there. And then you have the idea of love. I mean, how often do you use that word? Oh, I love that movie. Oh, I, I love that food. Oh, I don't love that. And then at the same time, we use the same word when we talk about, I love my spouse. I love my children. I love my job. We use the same word, but we understand it doesn't mean exactly the same thing. So how do we approach this? We need to understand when we say God is love, what we're saying is God, that is an eternal triune, Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, an eternal triune God who is holy, a being who is above all, who created all things. That is the God that we're talking about when we talk about God is love. That's a very specific designation. And then when we say love, we're not talking about just love in the sense that we normally think of love or how how haphazardly we normally use that word. What we're talking about very specifically is a self-giving for the benefit of others. That's the basic idea if you want to get down to it. 
So this eternal, triune, holy God gives of himself sacrificially for the well-being of others. And ultimately, if it's God, the one, God is the one who's showing the love for his glory. So with that in mind, let's go to 1 John chapter 4 where we find this phrase, God is love, and see exactly what did John mean when he wrote that. Now, if we're talking about context, 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 it's important that we understand the context of 1 John. 1 John was written during a time where there were some false teachers who were teaching a form of what is referred to as Gnosticism. Gnosticism is the idea that there is secret knowledge to be had in the universe. And if you can unlock all these secrets, this hidden wisdom, these hidden mysteries of the universe as revealed to us, then you can have a deeper, richer understanding. But you've got to have this mystical knowledge in order to truly have knowledge. So John writes in one way confronting these Gnostics, because they had said that Jesus was just one way that we knew God. Also, if you read through 1 John with that in mind, it'll make a lot more sense. 1 John also makes much more sense when you read through it, recognizing that John lays out a series of tests, a series of tests to see if you are truly in the faith. And so you go through 1 John and you see that John says, these are the proofs. These are the the points of evidence. These are the tests that you apply your faith to. And if your faith doesn't come out on the other side of this filter, then it's not true faith in Christ. So John lays this out through his work. You see certain themes that emerge. Knowledge, talks about knowledge a lot confidence. John mentions that a few times in the or in his work. Love, obedience. Those four major themes run throughout the book of 1 John. There's also something else about 1 John you need to know, and it's about the style of 1 John. When you read 1 John, it can be very jarring because John uses no uncertain terms. John just says, this is it. And he lays it out very clearly. In no uncertain terms does he lay out what it means to follow Christ. So with those things in mind, let's go to 1 John chapter 4 and start with verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, there's a lot going on in those few short verses there. But I want us to lock in on a couple of things. Throughout this whole passage, through the rest of 1 John chapter 4 and the first little bit of 1 John chapter 5, the first thing that we find in here as we are understanding the idea of God as love is this. God's love for his children is expressed differently than his love for his creation. His love for his children is expressed differently than the love for his creation. Now you say, wait a minute. I, I, thought, I thought 
the Bible says in John, 1 John 4, 8, God is love. Yes. I had a, a woman come to me one time many years ago in a Bible study, and she said, well, the Bible says God is love, so that settles it. And I said, well, what, what do you mean? And she said, it says God is, and then it says love. So if God is love, if the Bible says that, then we have to go by what follows that is. God is love, that settles it, doesn't matter what else you say. So I took her over to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29. Our God is a consuming fire. Well, that speaks of his judgment. And so I took her over there and I said, what about that? And she said, well, yeah, but, yeah, but that's more metaphoric. Like you don't get to pick. You don't get to pick. God is love. Yes. God is a consuming fire. Yes. He is both. And sometimes that makes people uncomfortable. Because lots of times people say, well, we need to emphasize God's love. We need to emphasize his love and tell people how much God loves him, how much God loves him. And we don't need to talk about judgment or justice or wrath or anything like that. That turns people off. And then on the flip side, you have people saying we need to always talk about judgment and wrath and the anger of God because we don't really need to major on the love of God because if we major on the love of God, then people are going to get the wrong idea and people are going to abuse the grace that God shows. Well, can I tell you, you have to do both. God's love is an amazing love because we are deserving of God's wrath. And since we're deserving of God's wrath and yet God shows us such a great mercy out of his great love for us, then we can recognize that God is a loving God. So which one is he? He is both. He is both at the same time. Well, that sounds contradictory. C point uh, that we looked at earlier, point number two. Scripture, doesn't, uh, scripture never contradicts scripture. God's not at odds with himself here. But we do find this truth. God's love for his children is expressed differently now here are some phrases you might have heard you'll hear phrases like this god loves everyone unconditionally does he well we'll talk about that in just a second or we'll hear phrases like this god loves the sinner but he hates the sin we we've you've heard and used phrases like that i've heard people say this god loves lost people more than he loves found people and, and the reference is the, the, the idea of uh, the shepherd leaving the 99 to go seek the one. So therefore, God must love the lost people more than the found people. Which is sort of ridiculous when you think about it, because what does he do when he finds the sheep? Takes it back to the flock. If he loved the lost sheep entirely more than he loved the rest of the flock, he would just be like, we're just going to hang out here. We're not going to go back with the rest of them. He don't, you don't see that. So what do we, how do we make sense of this? Well, again, Scripture never contradicts Scripture. God is a loving God. But then you have verses like Psalm 5, verse 5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Now, I know sometimes people say, yeah, it says evildoers. It doesn't mean sinners. It just means people who do evil things. Those are the people who, who have rejected Jesus and they, they know about Jesus and they just want to go and do their own thing. That's, that's, you don't find that. God hates 
all evildoers. Psalm chapter 7, verse 11. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Some translations say he's angry all day long. If a man does not repent, God will whet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. If you just go through and read Proverbs 15, just read through the whole chapter, you see a comparison between those who are righteous and are following God and those who are not. And God, God's word talks about how God despises the sacrifice of the wicked, the thoughts of the wicked, the, the way of the wicked. So you can't get away from that in a very real way. Biblically speaking, God hates sinners. Now, I know we say, wait, 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 wait. That's not what that says. That is what it says. God hates sinners. Now, when we look at that, we're tempted to say, yeah, but, but God hates sin, not the sinner. But sin doesn't go to hell. Sinners do. And so we have to understand the seriousness of this. Yes, God hates sinner. And it's not a matter of, I I had a guy one time, he says, well, God just hates sin. And it's just that people are in the way. Sinners are in the way and they just sort of, they're collateral damage. That's not what the Bible says. It is God's wrath against sin is a directed, personalized, settled wrath. It's amazing to me how sometimes we want to talk about God's love and we say that God's love is directed and personal. But then you start talking about wrath and we talk about it, oh, it's more general and it's just sort of out there. No, you can't have it. You can't have it both ways. God's love is directed and it's personal and it's settled. And God's wrath is directed and personal and settled. So both his love and his wrath, they're both directed and personal and settled. Now we look at that and we say, but wait, 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 doesn't he love sinners? Isn't that what the Bible says? absolutely yes absolutely so you may tell me that god hates sinners and he loves sinners yes that's what the bible says now how do we understand this well one way of looking at it and it's simplistic but one way of looking at it is like this there's god's merciful love that he shows in not giving everybody exactly what they deserve when they deserve it Aren't you glad that you don't get exactly what you deserve when you deserve it? I certainly am. But God does not give us exactly what we deserve when we deserve it. And out of his merciful love, he sends Jesus. And he shows this merciful love to all of his creation and not annihilating all of his creation. This is what the Bible talks about, reigning on the just and the unjust. We think about rain as a bad thing. Back then, they understood rain is a very good thing. The just get rain, the unjust get rain. This is God's merciful provision out of his great love for his creation. But there's a different kind of love that takes place when someone comes to know Christ as Savior. Now, it's a covenant love. It's a relational love. Not the love that you had before. When I was six years old, lying in my top bunk, God had shown me merciful love. And whenever at, at the age of six, lying there after saying my prayers one night, came coming to the realization that all these people that I've been praying for in church, about God, please do something and save the sinners, I realized that was me. And I was in need of salvation. 
And so I panicked there for a moment, and I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, I know what to do. So I asked Christ to forgive me. What happened in that moment? I went from God loving me just in a merciful way to God loving me in a personal, relational, covenantal way. I entered into a covenant with God himself, something I had not been just a few moments earlier. It's a different kind of love. It's different. It truly is a different thing. And now granted, merciful love, that's unconditional. Yes. So does God love everyone unconditionally? Yes, mercifully he does. But is that love that is unconditional, is that the same kind of love with which he loves us through Christ? No, because love through Christ is conditional. What's the condition? Jesus. He is the condition. And so whenever we approach God now, if we are in Christ, we're approaching him as his children, not just as his creation. That's qualitatively different. I had a guy one, tell me, one time tell me, he said, no, 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 no. You, you keep ignoring the parable of God, of Jesus, talking about the shepherd leaving the 99 to go get the one. That's what it's all about. And I said, no, that's the idea of bringing that person back into the flock and there is great rejoicing. Something was lost and now it's found. And he said, well, I just don't even think you're being biblical. And I told him, man, that's just one illustration that Jesus gives. What about when God refers to his people as his bride? Do you mean to tell me that God loves his bride the same way that he did when his bride was not his bride? I don't think so. Don't get stuck on the sheep. We're a bride too. So you got to put that into the appropriate context. Because even though we're image bearers, being his created, being image bearers as people created in his image, just because we bear his image doesn't mean we bear his righteousness. That comes only through a relationship with Christ. So there is a difference in that love. Listen to 1 John 3 verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. There's no middle ground there. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. There's that test again. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. The world, the sinful world system does not know Christ. It doesn't have a relationship with Christ. It doesn't know Christ. And so therefore it doesn't understand us. When we are the children of God. Back in 1 John, uh, we just looked at this. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word literally translated is mercy seat. It's the lid of the Ark of the Covenant where the blood was spilt to appease the wrath of God. And John writes and says, Jesus is that. Jesus is the one who completely and totally appeased the wrath of God in his body, in the shedding of his blood, just as that sacrificial animal, its blood was spilt upon the mercy seat, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. So too, Jesus on the cross did that. God, in his great love, sends his son. That's, that's the key idea found in John three sixteen. For God so loved the world. Now, here's what we normally think. We normally think of that word so, and we normally think of that word world, meaning magnitude. 
Well, that's sort of in there. But the idea is that word so is not so much. That word so is the word that means in this way. For God loved the world in this way. And it's not just world in the sense of the globe. It's the idea of God showed his love for this sinful world system. It's the idea of badness. Not just bigness, but badness. Big badness. God showed his love for the badness of creation in this way. How? He sent, he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It's the same idea in Romans chapter 5 verse 8. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So how did that come about? His merciful love. That's what Ephesians tells us, Ephesians 2, 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And God loved us. You ever think about that? God, if you're in Christ, God loved you when you were a spiritual corpse. God loved me when I was a spiritual corpse, rotting, stinking, corrupt. God said, I love you. Not because God said, oh, I see a little glimmer of hope. Oh, I see a little flutter of a breath or a little flutter of a heartbeat. No, no. Not because God looks at us and says, you know what? I see something there. I see something there I can work with. No, no. God loves us when we were dead in our sins. Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing as the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. God, his love for his children is, is expressed differently than his love for creation. So what does that mean for us? It means it eliminates the whole idea of universalism that everybody one day is going to have a relationship with God. That's not what the Bible says. But also it eliminates any last shred of any sort of self-righteous arrogance that may exist in which we may approach others and think, well, I've got it and you don't, so it must be something about me. No, uh-uh. No, it was just out of his mercy that he sent Christ and then it's only through the righteousness of Christ, through that covenant relationship, through entering into a personal relationship with him, that I am regarded in right standing with God. But that love is a different love. We experience it differently than we did before salvation. Secondly, God's love for his children endures eternally through his love for Jesus. Through his love for Jesus, his love for his children endures eternally. eternally. Look at verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected or matured in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so 
also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So we find that God's love for his children endures eternally through his love for us. And in the context, he says, we don't have to fear that final day. We don't have to fear that day of judgment. Why? Because of the verses before. Because of the propitiation. Because that God's wrath has been appeased. And so therefore now we don't face God's wrath. So we can have confidence to stand before God. We have confidence in the day of judgment. And love is that proof. The fact that we have that love of God applied to our life, we can say, I can, I can, I can approach God. Now, there are some people who say, well, you know, God is always loving, so anybody can approach him. It doesn't matter. God's always loving toward everybody at all times in exactly the same way. It's not what the Bible says. Hebrews 10 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's the fearful thing. It is frightening. And we, and we, we have to understand that God is a holy God. And as a holy God, whenever we are sinful and we are in the presence of a holy God, we are struck with fear. But we find that we can have confidence in the day of judgment. We can have confidence because of the love of God that's been given us through Jesus. The world, according to 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, is passing away. But the one who does the will of God endures forever. How do we endure? We endure because of what Jesus did. This is why we find in 1 John 4, 4, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. We have been given the Holy Spirit. That's what the passage we just looked at says. The Holy Spirit has been given to us and we have been sealed for that day of redemption according to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. And that seal on our heart shows protection it shows security it shows ownership it shows authenticity it shows that we belong to god and he's the one who's going to keep us safe and so therefore we can have confidence because this love that he has for us endures eternally this is why we find if if you get a hold of this verse it will it will turn you loose in in the book of john john 17 verse 23 listen to the prayer of jesus it sounds very similar to what John writes in 1 John about abiding in Christ and Christ abiding in us and Christ abiding in God and then we abiding in Christ and therefore his love stays put, abides with us. John 17, 23, Jesus prays, I in them, that's the, his disciples, his believers, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you loved me. Whoa, wait a minute. That means for the followers of Christ who, has had, who have had the righteousness of God applied to their lives, that means God loves you just like he loves his son. Which means if you're in Christ, if an angel took you and had Jesus there in heaven and, and, and brought you both before God the Father. And the angel said, God, 
Wh which one of these two do you love more? God would say, I love them the same. Now, now get a hold of that. Jesus is saying that you've loved them just as you've loved me. You've loved them just as much as you've loved me. You've loved them in the same way that you've loved me. That means whenever we're walking around as followers of Christ and we're saying, well, I just don't think God loves me. Are you kidding me? God loves you just like he loves his son. Not because of anything you did, not because of anything you had, not because of any worth that you may have brought along with you. No, simply because when he sees you, he sees you through his son. And so we find that that kind of love endures eternally. Therefore, we are going to be able to stand before God one day. God's going to put so much of himself in us so that we'll be able to stand him. The only one that can bear his presence is the one who bears Christ's righteousness. That's it. But not only that, look what John says in the last few verses here, starting with verse 19. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. That uncertain, no uncertain terms, right? For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Chapter 5, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. We find that God's love for his children expands our capacity to show his love to others. God's love for us expands our capacity to show that love. It talks, when John writes this commandment we have from him, verse 21, he's talking about John 13. John chapter 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, wait a minute, how am I supposed to love other people exactly in the same way that Jesus loved them? I am to love them because if Jesus is in me, Jesus is the one who is doing the loving. And so I need to be dead to myself and alive to Christ and allow him to love through me. Let's just be honest. In and of ourselves, we are not very loving people. We're not real loving toward each other. Somebody cuts you off in traffic, the first words on your lips are probably not, I love you. I love you with the love of Christ probably not and even within the church even among the family of god our first response many times is not love for someone else jesus says by this all will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another some translations if you have fervent love for one another very passionate deep love for one another but we have been given the capacity to love one another. So often we look at this, love one another, we say, well, that's, that's an expected obligation. Yeah, it's an expected obligation because he gives us that expanded capacity. It's not, God, it's not that, that Jesus says, now go love one another, you're on your own with this. He doesn't do that. Love one another and I am going to enable you to love one another. He expects it from us because he is in us. And if he is in us and he is loving, then if I am dead to myself and alive to him, then I'm going to be showing that love. 
If my heart is surrendered to Christ, I will love others. If I am not showing love for others, it's a sure sign that my heart is not fully surrendered to Christ in that area. And so we have to understand he expands our capacity to, to, to do that through the power of the Holy Spirit within us. So when you see that bumper sticker or you see that mug or you see that t-shirt or you see that wall art that says God is love, is God love? Absolutely, positively, yes. But that love is amazing because God is also a consuming fire. And in his holiness and in his righteous indignation, God, instead of immediately giving us exactly what we deserve when we deserve it, instead shows merciful love so that we might have an opportunity to know his personal covenantal love through Christ so that we can become his children. And it doesn't stop there. I don't stockpile or hoard God's love. No, God pours his love into my life, into my heart, into the hearts of his children. And then we as his children then we give the love that we ourselves have received, not by our own power, but by the power of God himself. This is a, this is a, weighty, a weighty verse. But the bottom line is if you know true biblical love, here's the test. If you know love in the right way, then you know God. And if you know God, you truly know what it means to love because god is love and he expresses that love in sending jesus and we can know him personally intimately individually covenantally by entering into relationship with him and that love is different than just the merciful love that he shows out of that great love that he has for us let's pray lord god we come before you. We're thankful for this amazing love that you've shown in sending Christ. Father, it's, it's amazing because of what we deserved. It's amazing because of the magnitude, the depth of our sin as we were dead in our trespasses, as we were dead in our sin before you. We were spiritual corpses before you, and yet you showed us merciful love. And then, for those who are your children, they, they entered into a covenantal relationship with you and now experience the love of a father toward his children. Not, not some imperfect representation that we may know here, but you're the perfection of what it means to be a father toward his children. Your great love for your children. Father, I pray if there's anybody here, anybody listening or watching, and they've experienced your merciful love, how do we know? Because you gave them another day of life. You gave them breath for today. You, you let their eyes open today. Let them hear your word today. Well, that's, that's mercy. That's merciful love. But Father, if 
they've experienced that merciful love. They've heard the mercy that, and the love that gave us Christ, but they've never entered into that personal love, that personal relationship, that covenantal love between a, a father and his children, between a, a, a bridegroom and his bride. Father, I pray today would be the day that they would say yes to you. And as you call them out of that grave of sin and self and to yourself, Father, I pray that they would hear your voice and respond to you. Father, we're thankful for your great love that sent Jesus. You loved us in that way. You loved us in our our badness, our sinfulness, our separation, our distance. And when we ourselves had nothing within ourselves that was worthy of redemption, you said, for my glory and for their good, I will send my son to redeem them. Father, we give you thanks and honor and praise for that. Father, I pray during this time, if there's any decision that needs to be made, I pray that you would grant your boldness in making it as we come before you and as we reflect and as we respond we pray that you be glorified and we ask this in christ's name amen some of us will be here at the front if you'd like to come pray with one of us if you want to come to the altar and pray if you have any questions about next steps how you can join the church or or the steps of being baptized you want to talk to somebody about how you can know for certain that you know christ as savior we'd love to talk to you you respond as god leads in this time